Those are not my sisters up there. That's anybody ever seen Golden Girls? Chris, see if you can bring up, go to YouTube and bring up the gospel remix. Have you seen it? Okay. Go to, and then when you get the gospel remix of this, I'll show you how to really sing this song. So anyway, great to, great seeing everybody. My goodness, that's a German chocolate cake. That's nice, man. Chocolate cake, sex, chocolate cake, sex. Sex is chocolate cake uh, when you're married, hallelujah. Beautiful, I see the connector. Did you find it? You got to turn up real loud. Okay, fire away. This is how gold, this is how this should be sung. Oh, is it coming? Is it coming? One second, one second, one second. Because I can't say anything spiritual before we play this. This is like, we're fine. It's, it's my birthday. I'll do what I want here. Right, 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 right. Okay, here we go. Here we go, here we go. This is the way Golden Girls... No, no, no. goodness. I watch that once a month. I just, I just, I watch it once a month. You know, uh, all honesty, I was trying to get somebody else uh, to preach today. I was going to have Karen preach, but Karen's going to preach. Mrs. H is going to preach, I think, next week sometime, very, very soon. And I was going to take today off, uh, be here, but take it off, but it just didn't pan out. So I said, okay, Lord, you know, birthdays are, are interesting. I don't care what anybody says, whether you're seven or 57, uh, halfway to 114. Um, it is a day of lots of feels uh, and emotions. And um, when I was a kid, I'll never forget the Brady Bunch. I think it was Peter threw a party for himself and no one showed. If you've never seen the, the episode, it's the saddest moment on the planet. And I don't care what anybody says, if if you're totally forgotten on your birthday, there, there's a sting. I, I, when I was a kid, I don't want to say, you know, there's, there's thinkers and feelers in this room. We basically are two kinds of people. How many of you are thinkers? How many of you are feelers? Well, we have a lot of feelers at North Central University. I bet if we ask that question at the University of Minnesota, they'll go, we're all thinkers. Um, nah, it's okay to be a thinker. I'm a feeler. Um, with a rising thinking side, uh, trying to get my thinking self on. But when I was a kid, I knew I was a feeler. I was in second grade. My parents put me in kindergarten when I was four because it was free uh, childcare. And so they got rid of me at four. Like I literally made it by the last minute to get to legally put them in school. So I was in kindergarten for graduated from high school at 17, was in college as a 17 year old living in the dorms. So, but I was 
in second grade, so I was maybe six, four, five, six. I, like, I was just, I just turned six or I was turning six. I had an older brother. We lived in this little crappy apartment in Issaquah, Washington. And my brother, Doug, uh, who is two years older than me, he um, had asthma, like really bad. I didn't know what asthma was. All I know is we went to visit him in the hospital, and he was, it was super serious. I'm just a little five- or six-year-old. All I knew was is that my brother was skipping school, and he was getting major presents, balloons, massive stuffed animals. Uh, we would go to the hospital, and everybody was there. I'm probably five. He's, he's seven, and he's in this oxygen tent. It, I mean, he's fighting for his life. He is literally on the verge of death, just gasping for air. And I'm upset because he's getting all the attention. How many know what I'm talking about? Your empathy goes right out the window here. So we were back home that night. He was still in the hospital. I was having a pity party, and I wanted some attention. So I decided that the only way I could get attention was to go in my bedroom, pull out the bottom drawer of the dresser, run, in, run into it as fast as I could, and snap my shin bone. So I was, I was going to go in there and break my leg. That's how warped I was as a feeler as a child. How many can relate to this kind of brokenness, this pathology? I pulled out the bottom drawer, and they're all out there, and I, I ran into that thing once. And uh, the pain was, I go, looking back, you know how fast you'd have to run into a dresser drawer to snap your shin bone backwards? So bad, bad strategy in life but I really understood I was probably more of a feeler than a thinker. So you get to this stage of life and uh, on your birthday, and you, you're very reflective, got grandkids, uh, adult children in their 30s. My sons now have receding hairlines. That's always a big passage uh, when your kid is losing their hair. That means you're at a different place in your life. And I've been thinking a lot about um, our chapels last week, and I really felt the Lord drop in my heart today. I want to give you the greatest verse I have ever come across on leadership in the scripture. And then I want to talk about coping mechanisms. And I want to give you the five traits or the five marks of what I call a multiplier. I gave a version of this two years ago. And I'm not just rehashing something, but there's a whole new student body. And I've, I've kind of retooled this a little bit. And if I had to stand here at 57 and give away uh, part of my father's heart for the room today, I would give you these five things, what I call the five marks of a multiplier. Not out of a book, they're out of my life. It's out of just thinking about all the investment and the goodness of God that has been in my life. It's really born out of last week, the conference, hearing the speakers, seeing Reggie and Eric, and then really facing the times that we are in where there is just an absence of coping mechanisms that are going on in the hearts and lives, not just of students, but of all of us that are inhabiting Western society. It's, it's becoming more and more difficult. So here's three things I told my own kids that I think were significant. I said, when you approach life, you're going to be faced with two doors in your life. Um, both doors represent opportunity. You're going to peer through both doors of opportunity, and they're going to be different because something on the other side of that door is different than this door. Here's how opportunity works, and here's how you make a decision for the opportunity. Two doors of opportunity. You look through the first door, and you say this to yourself, I can make that opportunity great. 
You're looking through the door, the other side, opportunities on the other side, and you say to yourself, I can make that opportunity great. Do you know why you say that? Because you already know that you possess what it takes to succeed on the other side. You're going to bring, now watch this, you're going to bring yourself to the opportunity that you already know you can succeed at. So you're going to make the opportunity great by walking through that door. But then you peer through the second door. When you look through that second door, you see a greater risk and you say, I must become great. I must become something new. If I'm going to be successful through this door, it's going to require me to become great. I'm not going to make the opportunity great. The opportunity is going to make me great. It's going to force me to become different, something new. I've told my kids their whole life, always choose the second door. Choose the, the door that forces you, that elevates you. If you go through the first door, you bring who you already are. You go through the second door, you bring the potential of what you must become. I've watched my sons and daughters choose second doors their whole life. And I've watched them take the greater risk, the greater uncertainty through the second door. I want to highly encourage you. I'm sitting here as president of this university because it was a second door opportunity. I didn't look at it and go, oh, yeah, I can make that great because I already possess what it takes. I've already got what it takes to be successful there. As tough as it is, pause before you go through the door. Pray for the door that, that causes you to become great, not that you're going to make it great. Second thing I told my kids was this. Do you know that uh, self-pity is the worst form of selfishness? The worst form of selfishness is self-pity. You know why? Because it sucks the life out of everybody in the room. So self-pity takes all the focus of the group and it funnels it down to the one. So I want to encourage you to really resist self-pity. Pity is a legitimate emotion. Pity can become self-pity and we can talk through those steps. You've got great leaders and counselors and people that help us walk through times where we feel that sense of, of uh, focus that we're, we're just in a free fall. But self-pity is a terrible form of selfishness. I really spoke that hard into my sons and daughters. And lastly, I told them this. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to spend the rest of your life avoiding people. So there's no such thing as a lifetime enemy. Nobody's a lifetime enemy. Nobody's a forever enemy in your life. Now, you might have a boundary towards somebody that threatens you, hurts you. We've all have that space at times in life. But I don't carry in my heart this animosity toward people because it, what it will do is it's going to rule your life and you're going to check out the room every time you walk into it and see if there are cars there or who's in the room. And you spend the rest of your life avoiding people. If you get into the pattern of not walking into rooms freely because you're avoiding people, man, it's a terrible path. I've had family, relatives, friends do that. It's a painful way to do life, and it sucks all the energy out of life when you spend it avoiding people. So don't have any lifetime enemies. Okay, here's the best verse on leadership. We've got to hustle through this. This verse is out of the Old Testament. I gave it two years ago. I'm going to give a different spin on this thing. 
The Bible says that, O Zebulun, he said, rejoice. Zebulun, in your going forth, and Issachar, in your tents. Now, these are two of the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses is blessing the tribes of Israel before he dies, and he's giving them instruction. There's two brothers, two tribes, that he meshes into one person. I got this from a powerful writing of a, of a, of a Jewish rabbi who helped me explain it really wasn't even talking about this topic. He was talking about wealth. And he was saying that most people understand in Jewish tradition, the blending of Zebulun and Issachar into a single brother. What do you mean by that? That the key to everything is wrapped up in this promise, uh, Deuteronomy 13, 18, and 19. Zebulun had a characteristic of going forth. I relate to Zebulun. This was the risk taker, the adventurer, the person that would step out. This was the second door kind of leader that goes through things without certainty, takes greater risks. Zebulun was known for their shipping. They were known for living out on the high seas. Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going forth, and Issachar in your tents. Issachar was the opposite. Issachar was the person who literally took up residence and stayed home, that yesterday looked like today and today looks like tomorrow. They lived in a tent or the tent peg. They drove down uh, their stakes because they were going to be a consistent person to be counted on every day. So Issachar was the stay at home and Zebulun was the take the boat ride, take a risk, take an adventure. So they blend them together into one person. It says there they, it's the only two brothers the tribes that are blended into a they. Every other blessing that Moses gives is to the individual tribe. But he blends Issachar and he blends Zebulun into a single person, into a single blessing. He said, if you can figure out and crack the code of living your life with a passionate, adventurous mindset, while at the same time having consistency and predictability and character, you're going to release treasures from the mountains and the seas. The most fruitful life, the most fruitful leaders, the people who get it are the people who blend risk-taking with character. People that blend adventure okay, with the tent, the ship in the tent. When I saw this a few years ago, it completely reordered my thinking. I began to embrace my Zebulun, natural Zebulun tendency and I began to welcome the Issachar reality. I need a tent. I need to be predictable. Leadership is about putting a thousand good days in a row together. And then another thousand. So that yesterday looks like today and tomorrow looks like today. There's something, I won't say boring, but something very predictable about great leaders. They are a blend of Zebulun and Issachar. With that said, I want to give you the five marks of what I call a multiplier. I gotta give these to you quick. Number one, five marks of a multiplier. Number one, can I cope? Can I cope with ambiguity? Now the word cope is gonna show up twice in this list. Let's talk about coping for just a moment. I, I really did, I sat down yesterday and said, Lord, you've given me an, an ability to have mental health for a long period of time coming from total upheaval. I should have every reason to be, uh, to act out. I know we all have childhood stuff. 
We all have disappointments and abandonment issues. All of that stuff, somewhere along the line, enters our storyline. And I always, I just never like it when somebody tries to make their story bigger than my story or their pain greater than my pain. Not everybody starts out, out at the same point in life, but I, it wouldn't take me long to unveil some pretty grotesque things that happened in my formative years when I was just a small adolescent. Seeing things, hearing things, experiencing things. That's not why I'm here this morning. All that to say, there's enough evidence in there for me to self-dismiss my life. So how did I get through that turbulent? Am I just wired differently? Or was I given some secrets along the way? Did the right person model some stuff and I just was aware that day and grabbed onto that example? I don't know. But I will say this, God has given us an opportunity to cope in this life. I just heard a powerful presentation from a Harvard professor. He's not a believer. And he talked about the inability of this modern generation to cope, not with extraordinary stress, but ordinary stress. It's ordinary stress that is no longer, um, we're no longer able to deal with as we have in previous. And he gave a, gave a whole reason as to why that happened between day six and 10 over-supervised children who were not allowed to develop coping mechanisms. So they're teenage years, it manifests with an inability to cope with ordinary stress. It's a powerful research. I can give you, give that to you, but can I cope with ambiguity? What is ambiguity? Ambiguity is multiple uncertainties that are right in front of me, multiple uncertainties, not just one, but multiple things of which I have no guarantee and no promise for how this is going to turn out. How can I cope? Meaning how can I maintain a mental, emotional, relational engagement and focus during moments of multiple or extended seasons of multiple uncertainty. I will tell you, these verses have saved my life. This has been my coping mechanism. Psalms 118, verse six. Psalms 118, I've said this verse a thousand times in my life. When I feel attacked, when I feel humiliated, when I feel um, wrongly accused, when I feel neglected, when I feel... Um, left out of the group, I will quote Psalms 118, verse six. It's very simple. Oh Lord, what can man do to me? Lord, what can man do to me? I contextualize my humanity against you and us. And I've come to the realization that you actually have no power over my life. The people who abandoned me, the people that spoke poorly of me, the people that physically abused me, they're mere man it's temporary and they have no jurisdiction over my life because I'm not driven by history, I'm driven by eternity. Okay, that's what balances my whole thinking. Somewhere along the way, I cut the ties with you. I cut the ties with you. I dismissed you from having power over my life. I cut the ties with my dad. I cut the ties with the churches I grew up. I cut the ties with my sports coaches. I don't mean I isolated myself from them, but I, I cut the conduit of power to make me feel and think a certain way about myself and my future. Oh, Lord, what can man do to me? Kill me? Great. Send me to heaven. Seriously. Now, friends, I don't want to, 
I want to go to heaven. I told you I just don't want to die. Okay, I don't want to go through that little threshold. How's this going to go down? I would prefer rapture, okay? Or like the man I knew, Leland Keys. He was 98 years old, was in our church in San Jose, had been a great pastor his whole life, same routine every day or every Sunday, come home from church. He was a widow now, a widower. He'd come home, he had a big old fat study Bible. He would sit in a recliner, make a tuna fish sandwich, and then go back over the Sunday notes. Brother Keys, Brother Leland Keys, did it every Sunday for years. One day he got home from church, made his tuna sandwich, opened up his Bible, he read the Bible, ate his tuna fish sandwich, laid his Bible on his chest, took his Sunday nap, and never woke up. That is how I want to die. I'm not into plane crash, you know, Walmart. Shoot. What can man do to me? Here's another thing that has saved my life. Talk about coping. I've allowed those around me to judge me, but not condemn me. I have a quest. I want to change the perception on the total earth of people saying, stop judging me. Stop judging me. No, no, no. I need you to judge me. What I don't need from you is condemnation. We judge, but we don't condemn. This little twist, this little colloquial retooling where the word judgment has become the F word, theological F word, is not in Scripture. Literally. We are, we are told to judge each other. Come on. That got a bigger response than sex. Judgment. Now, friends, in all seriousness, we are told that judgment begins with one another in the house of the Lord. What we do not do is condemn. But if we don't judge, we will never improve. And the problem with being one who judges, because I I remember one time I I had this insurance thing going on, and I got it went to court and I won, and then somebody else won. I said, No, no, the judge said. So the judge was my friend. I was glad I had a judgment from the judge. Many of you in this room have had, grew up with family turmoil and you became the beneficiary of a judge's ruling. Judgment is not evil unless the one who is discerning and correcting is a hypocrite. If they judge something in me or in you, and they themselves practice that and then correct it in me, it doesn't fly. And we reject that kind of correction, feedback, instruction, or input. But friends, we are not called to condemn one another, but we are called to judge each other. That's how we correct. That's how we love. As a matter of fact, 
Love doesn't love love. Love doesn't love love. Here's what love loves. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, it says, Love takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices in the truth. So you can't say that you love somebody when they're practicing implicit evil in the scripture. That is actually not love. And the enemy has twisted this to this generation. Well, love just loves love. And love is love, 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 we love. All we have to, that's not what the Bible teaches, friends. People are just going right off the cliff with that vain philosophy. So coping, I've allowed the world to judge me, to lift me up and form the character of Christ in my life and to protect me from self-harm. I don't let anybody condemn me. That is solely in the hands of a loving God. But we do judge each other, friends. So when someone says, don't judge me, they're saying, maybe they are saying to a hypocrite, you're not credible. But I don't eradicate judgment from life. If I'm left to develop myself, friends, I will go right off the cliff. I've been judged my whole life by godly people and it has saved my rear end. We don't condemn each other, but we do judge each other. Can I cope with ambiguity? Can I handle multiple uncertainties simultaneously? Here we go real fast. Number second one is this. Can I influence people who are not like me? The five marks of a multiplier. Number two, can I influence people who are not like me? Can I provide empathy and equity? It's not about me influencing people that look just like me, that that will make me a multiplier. It's my ability to influence people who are not like me. Not condemning them, not isolating them, not excluding them, but including them. And can I gather people who are different than me into my circle? Can I manifest empathy and equity? Here's number three. Here's the word cope again. Can I cope with complexity? Ambiguity is multiple uncertainties. Complexity is multiple realities competing for the same gap. When something is complex, there's multiple realities. If it's ambiguous, it's multiple uncertainties. Both require coping. Can I keep my focus, keep my emotion, keep my sanity, keep my relationships? Can I cope? Here's the fourth quality of a multiplier. Can I make barriers disappear? If you can't make a barrier disappear, friends, you will not be a multiplier. You've got to attack barriers. I call it highway building. Highway building. And musicians come up. we got literally 45 seconds here. Or a musician, one. We'll, just take, we'll take whatever the team. Can I make a barrier disappear? Can I eradicate... The roadblocks that slow block people from coming together in freedom and speed. Multipliers have a way of making barriers disappear from people. Cultural barriers, racial barriers, economic barriers, gender barriers. The best leaders in the kingdom have a way of eradicating all the barbed wire so that people are put at ease 
and have a freedom. The last thing is this. Can I live, can I live courteous? Which is a better word than diplomatic. Can I go from enmity to accord with people? I wish I had all five of these up there for you. The mark of a multiplier. Can I cope with ambiguity? Can I influence people who are not like me? Can I cope with complexity, multiple realities, as well as multiple uncertainties? Can I make barriers disappear? And can I live courteous, especially in this world with great incivility? I pray that we would be unleashed in this world in ways we never dreamed. I pray that you would be a blend of Zebulun and Issachar. I pray that you would go through the second door. Choose the opportunity with the greater risk that forces you to become great. You have to become more if you take that. Not simply be who you are. I guarantee God will bless those steps. Eradicate self-pity. Stop sucking the energy out of, out of the room, out of the house, out of the marriage, out of the whatever. And don't spend your life avoiding people. Go after that with all the heart and grace that Christ has filled you with. I believe there's a massive army of multipliers in this room. All right, we're done. Let's all stand together. All right, hey, all righty. Thank you for the cake. Thank you for the song. Thank you that I don't have to snap my shin bone today to uh, feel loved. I love you. I love here. I love this. I love today. I love tomorrow. And uh, I love Jesus with all of my heart. I'm learning to love him more and more. And I pray it would just, just come alive like never before. Thank you for our guests that were here today. What we're going to do is this. We're going to begin to worship. We extend chapel on Wednesdays. Whoever can stay and pray. The altars are open. There's some staff and faculty to hang out up here. Uh, but how many glad you came to chapel on Wednesday? Let me see your hands. You guys could sleep all day, but you came today. Hallelujah. Father, I just pray blessing upon our steps and our endeavors today, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would just take over this campus, God. Take over our hearts, God. Take over our conversations, Jesus. And Lord, I just pray for a new level of coping, God. Nobody can yell that into me. I can't make anybody feel anything. I can only help them begin to feel something new. So Lord, I just pray for a new spirit-empowered, word of God-generated strength in our inner life, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would bring good examples who would judge me well and judge me accurately and correct me, Lord, that would not take pleasure in me doing evil, but would rejoice in the truth. So, Father, I pray that I would not call watching my friend go off the cliff, love. I would turn their heart toward you, your word, your kingdom, and all that I do, Jesus, in your awesome name. Amen. These altars are open, guys. We're going to worship, pray. If you need to pray, stick around for a few minutes. Uh, this room is all yours. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.